Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. So we are happy to announce that we have added some additional search capability to our alerting dashboard. And I'm pretty excited about that. We basically moved over from a built-in. So we, we use Postgres on the back end as our core database. And uh, Postgres has search capability built into it, but we ended up moving over to Elasticsearch because it gave us a lot more capabilities. So, uh, of course, we can have basic search for our users, but it gives us a lot more. Faison, what else does it give us? Yeah, so the, the two big things that I see are like, A, speed. We can search a lot more data a lot more quickly than having to just increase our data by size just to support search. And then the second one that I really like is you can essentially store your searches. And then if any new alerts come in that match some query that you had created, you'll get alerted on it. So, you know, whereas before alerts would be coming in and you put in certain search terms here, you can, you know, say stuff like for these symbols, I want to see these keywords. And if new alerts come in that match, we're able to alert on that now. And also just the sorts of queries you can uh, construct in Elasticsearch will allow us to ask a lot more useful and interesting questions of our data because we have you know close to a million alerts now so there's a lot of stuff that we might want to do in aggregate or you know across that data beyond just searching text yeah it's uh, you know one of the most common feature requests that we're getting right now is a portfolio feature so to your point about being able to have saved alerts where you can set keywords you know say you only care about bitcoin and ethereum and a couple other coins or you care about particular topics on particular coins, like you care about proof of stake on Ethereum, you're looking for alerts about that, articles that talk about that, uh, maybe admins in chat rooms are talking about it. That's the kind of thing that it would give us. And as far as additional capability, that stuff sounds really exciting. Like, I think you, Fizan, you sent me this article on finding anomalies uh, using Elasticsearch. Yeah. And I know that's a bit, it's a bit broad, but... Uh, there's yeah. a lot of other kind of capability that it'll give us. Yeah, because I mean, we you know we've had people ask for abnormal movement on certain metrics, and this will give us a way to easily construct queries to get that as new alerts come in. Yeah, and so we can connect on-chain data with these kind of queries where we're searching for anomalies, and we'll probably find some really interesting stuff. So that's why yeah. it's really exciting. And just from a development perspective, it lets us get out more sorts of alerts much more quickly on the data that we have. Yep. So one thing we thought that would be fun to reflect on was our, our podcast this year. So, you know, we officially launched at the end of June. I think June 25th was the first set of episodes that went out. And a lot of things have changed in six months, both on the crypto front, but also on the traditional market. So 
here's kind of where things stood and where they are now. So when we started, Bitcoin was at 6,200 and it's at 3,800 now. It's a 40% decline. Ethereum was at 450. It's around 130 now. That's a 70% decline. The NASDAQ, which was at 7,500, uh, is 6,200 now. So that's about a 17% decline. And S&P was 2830. And now it is a 2350. It's also a 17% decline. And today there was a crazy move in the traditional market. I think that it was up 5%. So maybe those numbers are off a little bit by the time you hear this. But there's been a lot of changes. So thought it'd be fun to like kind of go through each episode and just talk about like what we had talked about and, you know, maybe how things are different now. So our first episode was titled The Quant Layer Genesis Story, Crypto and Stock Market Comparisons, Why Crypto Needs Reg FD. And so our first episode, we covered why we were launching this podcast, you know, how we started our company, why we got into crypto and comparisons between crypto and traditional markets. So we talked a bit about Reg FD, that's regulation, fair disclosure, and how something like that was needed for crypto. And just as a reminder, if you don't know what Reg FD is, it's basically in traditional stock markets, the SEC required that any information that a public company put out, they just had to get that information out to everyone. So you can't selectively disclose important information to like one group if you haven't disclosed it to the whole market. So that's why company puts out press releases. And when they do conference calls, you know, they, they try to make sure that they're letting everyone know important information. So that was, you know, basically why we launched. We, there was a lot of uh, bad actors in the space at the time. And it's slowly getting cleaned up for sure. So that it's, things are changing on that front. But there was just a crazy amount of kind of insider information that was flying around which is the reason why we thought we needed something like Reg FD for crypto. Um, I don't know, Faison, what do you think? What, how do you think things have changed since then? Yeah, I don't think we're you know there yet. I think what we've seen is the much more fraudulent behavior, the completely you know scammy ICOs, like those things are being cracked down more, more so than like crypto corporate governance. We're not really at the point where I think there's guidelines in place for that. Yep. I think a lot of the bad actors have not been regulated. They're just like the SEC and other organizations are just taking action on the, the much more fraudulent actors. Yeah, I saw some news today out of the Wall Street Journal that something like 90 different ICO teams have been are under investigation and that, you know, 35 million or so has been recovered from ICOs so far. So I don't know if those numbers are a high or low. I don't that doesn't give me a good they seem low, like 90, yeah. there's been, you know, 2000 plus ICOs. They've only done 90, 35 million, you know, there's billions raised in, in fraudulent 35 ICO. 35 million is though. like one medium sized shit token ICO. Yeah. <laughs> in 2017. Right. <laughs> yeah. The second episode was titled, What's a Crypto Investment Bank? Conversation about crypto due diligence with crypto launchpad CEO Adiraj Gupta. So, this second episode, this was with our first guest from the Crypto Launchpad, which is this crypto investment bank. This was an interesting one because it was our first guest, but also because we got an interesting perspective from kind of like an insider in the space, a, a service provider. And, you know, we should probably catch up with him, curious, like how things are going on his end now. Yeah. Because a lot of his business model had to do with due diligence around ICOs. Right. Yeah, and I think that activity is way down. Yeah. 
Episode three, crypto's ICO legal landscape, the attack on Verge, M&A in crypto, and better treasury management for crypto teams. As you can tell, at the time, we were trying to like stuff as much information as we could into these into these podcasts. I think we've done a better job of like not putting too many different topics into an episode. We've been trying to yep. you know, stick to like one or two. So for this, we recorded the episode when people were still trying to figure out ICOs, utility tokens, security tokens, and whatnot. We looked at the time warp attack on Verge and how teams need better treasury management. So on the ICO front, the thing that's solidified for me, at least since then, is that ICOs have really quieted down and that the a utility token idea just won't really fly anymore. So go back a year and a half-ish and companies were, sorry, coin teams were basically selling this idea of the utility token that could also act as a kind of investment. And I remember we talked about this, like it doesn't make sense for so many products. Um, right. You're kind of like pre-buying an API token. Why the would that change in value? It doesn't exist. Yeah. So, yeah. With the intention that you are going to sell it once it exists and not right. yet. <laughs> yeah. It, it, didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense. It was like very clear, like this is a really weird use case. With explicit promises of increase in value. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Not good. On the treasury management side, you know, we should basically take a victory lap here. The teams basically, I think we called this like teams were, had raised an ETH and they were just holding their ETH. They weren't selling them. They weren't using them as uh, capital to run their business. Like if you raise like $10 million, right? And then now that $10 million is worth $3 million, um, probably less because you've used some of it for capital, for running your business. And now you're running pretty short. Like that's a huge problem. You know, if you raise money to run a company, you shouldn't be risking that capital by trading it. Like 100% of your business is already tied to crypto. Speculating on the price is not your core business model. You raise like, like I said, you raised $10 million. They should have just cashed it, just put it in cash or have an, a certain amount of ETH. Maybe they need a certain amount of ETH to actually run their business on, though I doubt it, but they didn't do that. So we're actually heard of ICO teams now who are resorting to trading capital in order to improve their treasury. That's even like extra insane. <laughs> when ETH, when it was in its 80s last week, we saw this one substratum. It's one of these like compute sharing ICOs, kind of like Gollum Network and, right. and IXEC, right? So they announced they're going to start trading ETH because they're running out of capital. And that's just, it's just a horrible, horrible idea. I mean, they could have just originally converted their ETH to dollars and back when there was a ton of liquidity to do so, and they would be fine and have a ton of runway. So they're probably screwed now. So I guess like this whole thing kind of brings team quality into question for me. Anyone who's speculating on their treasury is just straight gambling. They're not, like public companies might have assets I mean, they definitely have assets like cash and marketable securities, but they're not going to like buy other companies' stock with them. They're not going to, maybe they'll buy their own stock because they believe in it, but you don't want to mess with your treasury. That's your working capital. That's why why it's called working capital. So any team that's kind of like speculating on their working capital, it's not the kind of team that I trust to run a, pro a good project. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on this one. First is just around timing. Like right now, it's it was clearly terrible choice to not put at least some of the ETH into dollars. But I, I bet at like, you know, in late 2017, 
it was the exact opposite. If you were, mm-hmm. you know, converting your ETH to dollars when the price was running up, uh, you were afraid of looking stupid. And so I bet that played somewhat into, you know, why people didn't didn't convert right away, especially in 2017 when a lot of the ICO money was coming in and the prices yep. were shooting up. And then I guess the the maximalist would say if you're raising an ETH, you should be paying your developers an ETH, you should, you know, be spending an ETH. And that's obviously not practical until adoption increases because your devs are paying rent in most likely, you know, something other than ETH. (laughs) Not something other than ETH. So it's it's interesting how this plays out until adoption increases because you know, if you are compensating in a crypto that's still relatively volatile you do have to have a game plan to hedge against the value of that collapsing. Yeah. Episode four. So this title was a discussion with software consultant Ben DeFrancesco on building great blockchain software. So I thought this was a fun one. Uh, ben was our second guest. His, he runs his own consultancy at Scopelift. And he had an interesting perspective on the state of crypto at the time versus the state of the internet in its early years. So we, we talked about that for a bit. We also looked at the scaling debates on different kind of smart contract platforms. And we also talked at length about a language we all like called Elixir. And I think Ben generally has one of the best technical perspectives on this space. And I'll put a link to the show notes to his newsletter. But really, like, he, he distills the essence of an important um, technical development over the last week or two in each weekly newsletter. So I definitely recommend reading it. It's, it's, it's really good. So I think one of the running themes of this episode was that, you know, writing good software really takes a long time. And pretty much every software project takes longer than initially expected. And so now that we're at the end of 2018 and still waiting on technical progress from a number of platforms, you know, a lot of that perspective has rung true. You know, we're still waiting on like layer two stuff for Ethereum, continued layer one, uh, layer two stuff for Bitcoin. On the Ethereum side, things have gotten delayed. It, pretty much every ICO has not hit any of its milestones on its roadmap. So, you know, things take a long, long time. So I don't know. What do you what do you think, Faison? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, best case scenario, you have a great team that writes a great white paper and raised enough money. And it's still going to be, you know, a time-consuming and difficult process to actually hit your roadmap because these are not, you know, simple platforms that are being built. And then, you know, that was not the majority of the scenarios. I think a lot of teams just raised a bunch of money with a white paper with the hope of figuring it out. You were hearing of, you know, people that were helping write white papers, like that was that was being outsourced, or teams, you know, raising money and then hiring developers. And so, you know, if you have no money you know, once the the money became worthless and no team and no tech, then you're going to have no product. And that's what we're seeing play out. It's funny because actually, I don't know if it's funny is the right word, but I wonder what the psychological consequences of this crash were for these teams. Like if they didn't convert their ETH to dollars and they raised a whole bunch, like is that going to hold back progress? I imagine for a lot of them it will. Like, I mean, we can assume that a number of the project were just just garbage and trash, right? But yeah. and say nine, say that's like ninety percent, but ten percent that weren't, right? That where yeah. maybe the developers cared a lot about the project and whatnot, they still have to deal with the consequences of the decline in price. So if they didn't manage the treasury well, right. and uh, the price especially declined if, a ton, you know they did actually manage to ramp up ramp up the team with the expectation of a you know burn rate based on having ten million in the bank and it actually is three million, right? That, 
that kills your your runway and now you're looking at layoffs instead of Griff. Yeah. But yeah, we should catch up with Ben again soon. I'm wondering what is how how his views in the market have changed. Yeah. So episode five, title this one was Crypto Teams Need to Communicate Better. And uh, we also had a new segment, which uh, we need to we need to do this one again because we really haven't. A new segment, Big Drama and Small Cap Land, Zoin and Sumo Coin. Yeah, these are always fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's always the weirdest stuff going on with these little coins. So on this one, we talked about just general communication between crypto teams and their customers and who it was really non-existing or just lacking. So one thing we did was we reflected on how exchanges could have better predictability on their platforms through, you know, techniques like API versioning or and how coin teams can kind of flag important events they need to share with their coin holders. A lot of, you know, one of the things that our dashboard picks up are major exchange listings and delistings. And they're important to pick up because they can often have a significant short-term impact on a price. So obviously, you know, we've all heard about the Coinbase effect, like every time Coinbase adds a new coin, it's it's going to pop. And that's been going on for a while. Last two biggest ones were like ZRX and BAT. And so because the platform picks up these kind of moves, our customers can be notified of these moves early on. So if they're a holder in the in the coin, they can know why why it's moving so quickly. If they're not a holder, maybe they want to put on a quick trade. I don't know. There, there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to know soon. And a lot of exchanges, actually, there's no data like standard for this. So every exchange just looks differently. And that's what basically got our thinking about this. We also looked at SumoCoin and Zoin, which are these like really tiny micro caps with very strange and concerning trauma. Basically, SumoCoin was this privacy coin that had a few core developers who actually very likely were avatars of just a single developer who very likely was a scammer. They also had a terrible PR team and eventually they just got destroyed. It has a you know market cap of $400,000 now. You know, in July, it was when we recorded, it was 63 cents. It'd gone up to like $9 at some point in January or February. Then it went to 63 cents and now it's at like five cents now. With Zoin, uh, so this was in a privacy coin and they ended up forking to another coin called Nix. But after they fork, the Nix team said they're handing off the reins of Zoin to another team. And that other team, someone stepped up to become lead dev and he had no development experience, like none. <laughs> and they ended up renaming themselves to Noir, which you know sounds pretty silly. And they also have a $400,000 market cap too. So I guess that's the ma- magic number. When a coin is dead, it's got a $400,000 market cap. <laughs> yeah. How do you think things have changed here? Yeah, I mean, I think the the big one was that back then there was basically, I think, an underlying belief that some percent of shitcoins are going to take off and be successful. So, you know, you have Ethereum, but then people are making bets on, well, there's probably going to be another successful smart contract platform in the number two spot. Who's that's going to be? Or, you know, some other like not proof of work based coin. And I think that caused a lot of activity. And I think people are less confident in that in the current market. And then also just with the drop in underlying BTC and ETH value, trading or buying shitcoins, they needed to dramatically outperform to be worth it. And that wasn't happening. And so, you know, you see the collapse of, I would say that, you know, a very large percentage of these shitcoins. Yep. 
And to your point about people realizing they're just shit coins, like I wonder what that means for the next cycle. I think the general view is like, oh, there's going to be a, an alt spring. But there have been so many people that have been burned by these things. I we think to- people be more skeptical because I remember, you know, in tw- 2017, your trading hypothesis basically had to just be like, oh, people are talking about smart contracts. Let me just go look at like, what's a small market caps smart contract thing that recently launched and you just buy some and the chances were prices were going to go up. Right. And I think that is probably gone and hopefully we'll see a little more quality from the coin teams. And then in terms of the investing side, you know, more thorough research as well. Yep. So episode six, this one is titled DigitalOcean versus Google Cloud. Polychain's $1 billion filing, Anderson Horowitz's $300 million fund, how to be a shady hedge fund manager, and second layer solutions for Ethereum and Bitcoin. We really packed topics into that one. So this one covered our move away from Google to, so we were running our alerting dashboard on Google Cloud. And one day we woke up and they just told us that the app was down, like no notification or anything. And we just said, okay, we're not going to be on this, these guys anymore because we can't trust them. So we ended up moving to DigitalOcean, had a really good experience there. Yeah, it's been great. My life is easier deploying stuff and, you know, have had none of those issues. Yeah. So we also looked at Polychain Capitals. They had a billion dollar SEC filing about their holdings and then how you needed a million dollars to invest in them. We looked through the commentary on the Anderson Horowitz fund launch went through their announcement and terms of how they thought about good crypto projects. So I wonder how a lot of this stuff has changed. At first, I thought there would be like a backlash because of how much uh, these prices of coins have fallen. But, you know, Polychain just raised another multi-million dollar fund and they've already invested a bunch of it. And, you know, Anderson Horowitz, of course, is very involved in the space. One thing that feels a little different than when we recorded is that a lot of these VCs seem more dismissive of Bitcoin than I remember them being before. Like, I remember specifically, there's two things come to mind. When Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash were first going through their fork back in, you know, over a year ago, and Bitcoin's price was getting hurt, a lot of Silicon Valley VCs came out and were like, you know, you need to support Bitcoin because of X, Y, and Z. I just remember seeing on Twitter, like a lot of that. It was seemed that it was like this group effort where they all decided to do this. Yeah. And then now I just don't see it. The same group of people, I don't. This A very similar group of people, what I do see is commentary like Bitcoin was a great first attempt. The kind of idea like, oh, you know, how Facebook took over and MySpace died, like that kind of commentary. It's like Bitcoin was the first version and there'll be other versions that'll work out better than Bitcoin, stuff like that. So the commentary there is really different. And it, it brings to mind like what the incentives are. A lot of these guys made a ton of money on Bitcoin and yeah. they're not going to have the same percentage kind of return. And not only that, like what kind of companies can they invest, even if they did support Bitcoin, like how much money are they going to be able to make on companies that build on top of it? I think that's a really big unknown right now. Like how com- how people who build on top of Bitcoin are going to be able to uh, monetize their their companies. So yeah, you could argue that you know the a lot of VC returns have come from like centralizing the internet. Yeah, <laughs> with a handful of large tech companies, those have been the biggest winners. Right, this is essentially <laughs> like the opposite business model. Right. So 
you know, no matter what they think, like they have capitalist in the name, right? A venture capitalist is is a capitalist. Like they're going to go in the direction they feel that they can make the mass the the best returns. Another thing we talked about in the episode was like just on the traditional market side, what a high moderate mark is, and how hedge funds try to juice their returns at the end of the month and year and things like that. It was a pretty fun episode. So episode seven is one of our more popular ones. So titled Bitcoin ETF and Alternative Energy ETFs, Zcash Incentive Structure, and How to Spot Bad Code in Your Crypto Investments. So in this one, we looked at a ETF filing by SolidX and Vanek and how it's reminiscent of the alternative energy boom of ETFs in the mid to late 2000s. So SolidX and Vanek ETF has had the closest probability of success so far, given how far into the process they've gone. And, you know, they've been delayed, and I don't think that's a surprise. Like, this is a very new space. There's a lot of research the SEC needs to do. And also convincing the SEC needs to happen as well. But at least they're still in the running. A lot of other ETF filings have been, you know, denied. So what I liked about this ETF in particular is that they have a solid understanding of what Bitcoin is. And, you know, the cold storage, security risks, and things like that. What I wasn't super enthusiastic about was that the ETF, it's more than just a price tracker, but it is also not going to help people participate in the network. So as level two solutions come online, you know, we might, we'll probably need people to be doing things with their Bitcoin. Like maybe they need to lock them up. Maybe they need to do other things with it. So if you, when you hand your keys off to someone else or you hand your ownership of your Bitcoin off to someone else, we don't know what that's going to mean for that for the holder. Hmm. So it basically got us to a conversation what an actively managed ETF in crypto might look like. You know, how are they going to work with second layer solutions? Will investors demand their third party Bitcoin holders to help them earn from their BTC? I think that's partially a point in for a lot of these uh, second layer solutions. We also went over the Zcash incentive structure and then talked about developer incentives more broadly. And this topic's come up a bit more recently. Like you hear about these bugs in systems. There are a few big bugs in some of the larger coins. And I think a lot of the developer community said, for us to be able to you know, catch these things, we need to be compensated to do so. And I think uh, so Luke Dash Jr., he's one of the Bitcoin core devs. He actually opened a Patreon account recently to kind of raise funds to help him continue work on Bitcoin. Very talented developer, like really awesome uh, Bitcoin dev. And that's surprising, I think, to a lot of people. I think a lot of people might think like, oh, or sh- shouldn't Bitcoin core dev like just be loaded, right? Shouldn't they have made just a killing on on Bitcoin? But that's not the case. So there does need to be some kind of solution to handle this. I don't know exactly what it is. Zcash, what they do is they take a percentage of the rewards and they pay that to like a fund and then that fund distributes it to the developers. So, you know, that's one way to handle it, I guess. But you know, I don't know. What, what do you think, Faison? Yeah, I think it's still very early. I think the Patreon thing can work for specific individuals that are right at the like, you know, top of the hierarchy in terms of like, okay, a Bitcoin core dev. But I don't know that that's a practical solution for more broadly compensating what is essentially, the, the, this is a broader discussion of how do you compensate open source work that's actually tied to a relatively profitable financial instrument? Right. So, you know, the the first part of that question has been att- attempted to be answered for a long time in many different ways. And it was either some form of crowdfunding or corporate sponsorships. And here, because the work does lead to some underlying like 
financial value creation directly, I think we'll figure out. It's still yet to be determined how to distribute some of that uh, reward out to the people that participated beyond just you know people being invested in the coin they're working on. Yep. Actually, it brings to mind like something like Ember, for example. Yeah. You know, React basically has Facebook at its back. Ember, a lot of the core team is at LinkedIn or has some relationship with LinkedIn, uh, which is now Microsoft, of course. Um, Angular has like Google at its back. So there are like open source projects that are used pretty heavily that are backed by corporate sponsors, but it's very different from in crypto. Um, I think Bitcoin to be backed by a corporate sponsor, is that kind of a security risk? You know, I think Coinbase wanted to kind of dictate like what Bitcoin development was going to be like. People won't like it because it's going to be, it's not going to fit the ethos of the system. Yeah, and I think the the big difference there is work on Ember doesn't necessarily generate money as directly as keeping Bitcoin secure, for example. Right. So, <laughs> which, yeah. which is the definition of generating money. Yeah. So also on that episode, uh, we, we discussed a bunch of like crazy stuff we were seeing on the alerting dashboard or in terms of what teams were doing. Like we saw crypto teams leaking secret keys to GitHub. Why is that a big deal? A secret key, imagine, is like your password. So, you know, certain applications, if you connect to an external API, you have a secret key that kind of uh, authenticates that application so it knows that you're the one accessing it. So those keys were just going up onto GitHub. And then we also looked into a missing deposit on Gollum Network's mainnet, how our users would be able to investigate bad code for their investments. So it was a good episode because we were able to show people like how they could actually, even if they weren't a developer, how they can go look at commits and see what was going on. Next episode, number eight, was short selling explained Tesla and how controversial shorts work in NVIDIA and Bitmain. This one, we took a deep dive into shorting, what it is, how it works, why it works, you know, why people short, psychology shorters, things like that. And we talked about the bull and bear case around Tesla. And first off, all our Tesla episodes are crowd favorites. They're all like in the top few. So there's something about doing podcasts on Tesla. We also looked at NVIDIA, its IPO, and the company's gross margins, how that relates to news of a Bitmain IPO filing. And to the Bitmain IPO filing, this one at the time was not even like, this wasn't like a year ago even. This was just a few months ago. They were just minting money. And after a few things, uh, like, for example, crypto prices falling, them relying too much on Bitcoin Cash, a contentious Bitcoin Cash fork that resulted in a hash war between Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Cash SV, the company's facing a ton of problems. So now their IPO plans are probably shelved. They've announced a bunch of layoffs and things are not looking good there. So Samson Mao of Blockstream, he tweeted, uh, reports in China are now saying Bitmain layoffs are likely to be as high as 85%, not 50%. All non-essential business units are cut. Teams working on AI initiatives are decimated. We also saw news about GMO. This is kind of like this Japanese conglomerate that was building out mining ASICs who are now, and they're stopping. So you know, things change really quickly in the space. Yeah. Uh, in fact, between the time you put that tweet about the 85% layoffs into the notes and I went to go follow up on it, it's been deleted. <laughs> really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that link link uh, doesn't go anywhere anymore. That's so hilarious. I just thought that was funny. So I guess they might have, someone might have tweeted something they weren't supposed to. <laughs> Episode nine was 
custody solutions and infrastructure, family offices, and how funds should educate their analysts on crypto. So this was one of our most popular episodes so far. And and for context, this was early in early August, and we went, went over our experience at the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit conference here in New York. And what we learned about with respect to custody solutions and infrastructure and the progress that was being made for institutional investors. So went over what a family office is, how it's different from institutional investors, how important custody is and why and whatnot. At the time, there was a ton of talk about how important custody was, how there were going to be some huge offerings at the end of Q4 and so on. You know, we have heard about like backed, they're going to have a, a, a large custody offering, but just this general talk of custody has seemed to have died down a bit. It's not to say it's not being built, but you know, with the decline in price, there's just a decline in interest. So yeah, that's been pretty interesting. I know Gemini has a custody solution and I'm sure there's some other ones out there, but it's definitely not hyped the way it was at this time. Yep. And the next episode, episode 10, more about Tesla, this time about going private, software developer personalities and getting tangled in IOTA. So this one we just discussed, Elon's Musk tweets about taking Tesla private for 420 per share. Yeah. How that whole thing was just totally ridiculous. Yeah. It's not thoroughly covered. Yeah. And then we also did a deep dive on IOTA and Tangle, and that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this, but I saw some news about IOTA. They have another like hash function they're using now that they rolled. <laughs> I didn't read it in depth, but it's it's not surprising. Yeah. Episode 11. So Boston's growing fintech and crypto scene. Telegram is a crypto platform and P2P lending. This one was interesting because like, so we got to present at the Boston New Technology Fintech and Blockchain event where we were able to present the alerting dashboard to, you know, a couple hundred attendees, got some great questions and it was uh, it was a fun experience. There was a really cool crypto project we saw called the Button Wallet, which was basically a Telegram bot that let users buy and sell and trade cryptos on Telegram. And I remember us talking about that, like, given that everybody is on Telegram, it just seems like a it's very natural play. Great UX for an exchange, yeah. So I don't think those guys have launched yet because I checked, but it will be interesting to see when they do and you know how things are going on over there. Episode 12, Tesla staying public. Uh, how Amazon and AWS made angry shorts give up and why rejection of the Bitcoin ETF is a good thing. So with this one, we looked at the drama around Tesla again and discussed its similarities and differences with Amazon. So what we did there was basically we did a deep dive into Amazon and AWS and how AWS really turned the spigot on for Amazon. You know, Amazon had low margin, was traditionally like a low margin e-commerce retailer uh, that was growing very quickly. It was fine. And then suddenly they launched this other business that the street did not understand at all, which was AWS. And that has just turned turned into like this massive, massive cash cow. So many people use AWS, so many startups, uh, bigger companies have been migrating to the cloud, which means migrating to AWS. And they basically opened the door for competitors like Azure and Google Cloud who are attempting to do something similar, but they they basically created a, a new market. So this isn't to say like Tesla is doing that, but if you're interested in understanding the bull case of uh, Tesla, it's worth looking at Amazon. So that, I thought that was a pretty fun episode. Episode 13. So this one was, uh, we went through like, it was called an alerts blitzkrieg. And we go through a bunch of different uh, vulnerabilities that we found. So in Mana, EOS, Stratus, 
EtherScan, Bitcoin Cash. And then we also talked a little bit about like how Wall Streeters and technologists can be more lay language friendly. And I think we disagreed a bit on how lay language friendly they should be. So I don't know if your views have changed at all, but basically like one thing that's been really nice about the space is I've never seen so many people interested in the details of how finance works. I've seen plenty of people like interested in a stock be like, oh, what do you think about how to trade? I want to learn how to trade. Yeah, I want to learn how to trade. What do you think about Microsoft? What do you think about Google? Should I short Tesla? Like I've seen plenty of that. What I have not seen is, oh, how come, uh, what's wash trading? It's like, that amazes me that there's like this vast group of people now that are interested in what wash trading is, what what's bad, why it's bad and all that stuff. You know, bid ass spreads, like all kinds of like really specific finance things. And I think the thing that set this off was Vitalik was talking about like an upgrade. And it was like this, it was like a 45 to 50 tweet, tweet storm. And yeah. I started reading it. And I had I was, I was just like completely lost very quickly in terms of what he was yeah. saying. Um, and I think your point was it's hard to okay. Well, my point was basically if you're gonna go out into the public and explain something, try to do it in the simplest way as possible. But I think your point was like that's true, but sometimes there's technical things that are very hard to like explain in a very simple way. And there's like a yeah, you know, a term of art like. My point was there's jargon and jargon is like technical, you know, terminology that's avoidable. Then there's the case where in simplifying things, you lose necessary precision when explaining a technical topic. And so you have to decide who your audience is and if it's okay to lose the precision or if you actually are trying to get the details of a technical topic across, then you you can't give that up. Right. And so I think that's where we disagreed. Yep. I do agree there are particular topics that need their own language, right? I just think for Vitalik and Twitter to talk about a network upgrade, it's like, why not do a blog post and then get all the people who care about that to pay attention to it? Anyway, so next episode was called Turning a Bug into a Feature, Bug Snag, Why You Shouldn't Violate Open Source Copyrights, The Bitcoin Dev Mailing List, and Why Crypto UX is So Bad. So... We talked about how we used Bugsnag to develop a feature for the alerting dashboard. Basically, what was happening was we were integrating with one of these APIs, and the API broke for like a totally different reason we hadn't seen before. And so we and Bugsnag notifies us of that. So we went in and looked at it and and realized, oh, this is failing, but it's failing for a reason that's really interesting. It's basically like a company's uh, GitHub repo was being pulled from github due to a copyright violation and there's an actual like http code for this type of request and it should it like looked like it was failing but it was actually this is this is really interesting so we surfaced that now and that that was really cool we also highlight like how useful the bitcoin dev mailing list is just in general for learning about how the bitcoin core team thinks about their protocol and I think we stress this a lot on the podcast. We should just keep doing it. Like how primary research is the way to go. Like primary research in this space is like going to the Bitcoin dev mailing list. Like you want to know what the devs think, like go read that. Don't read what Bloomberg says or don't read what Wall Street Journal or 
Forbes or whatever are saying that these guys are saying. I mainly buy into ICOs based on which celebrity has endorsed the coin. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite celebrity that endorses uh, your favorite ICOs? Uh, I just buy anything that Lionel Messi or Floyd Mayweather tell me to buy. <laughs> <laughs> which what was Lionel Messi uh, associated I with think again? It was a phone that was a hardware had a built-in hardware wallet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just remember seeing that and being like, what, what the heck is this? It makes no sense. Like, does he even know what he's endorsing? <laughs> um, next episode, open source as a revenue driver. How Elasticsearch uses open source for revenue growth, tech investing in crypto, and a cautionary tale of bad crypto trading and flash crashes. So this one by far is, has been our most downloaded episode. It's like 2x the rest. 2x the next closest, actually. And so we basically explored the... Elastic IPO. So we talked earlier on this episode just now about like Elastic Search and what it gives us. So we went into a pretty, they were going public around the time and we went into a deep dive into their SEC prospectus. Um, we looked at their business model and risks and how open source software has been a pretty big revenue driver for them. And I think an interesting point you made on this episode was that meetup growth and like general community growth are actually uh, important metrics. Like I think the thing I had mentioned was like, if this was five years ago and I was trading full time and someone said, oh, you should be paying attention to like the number of meetups that are opening for Elastic around the world. I would be like, that's not a metric I can do anything with, right? But yeah, I think that was an interesting point you made with respect to that. The next episode was episode 16, which was titled The Zafe Exchange Hack and how we called it two months ago in IPFS, that's the Interplanetary File System. So this one, like one of the exchanges is a Japanese exchange called Zafe, Z-A-I-F. We had, we integrate with it in the dashboard. You know, we, we let users know when there's exchange additions or delistings from them. And one thing we noticed was like, there wasn't great hygiene to the data they were sending over. So like, without getting into like the super specifics, but they're basically sending over like error codes when there are successes and they're sending over success codes when there are errors. They're doing like all this weird stuff you would never do. And it was, it just seemed really hacked together. Right. And because of that, that's just like a major red flag. Like what else in right. their infrastructure are they not doing well? Right. It's just if they're sloppy about that, they're probably sloppy about other things. Yeah. And I think that's really fair. I think some would think it's kind of like an ad hominem type of attack. Like they get one thing wrong. That means everything they do is wrong. But in tech... And those people are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we talked about IPFS, the interplanetary file system. Uh, we should do a deeper dive on that one because that was that was really interesting. Episode 17, Crypto Legal Landscape with Kurt Watkins of M.G. Miller Intellectual Property Law. Securitized real assets and intellectual goods, crypto patents, hard forks and derivative works, decentralized exchanges and alternative trading systems. So uh, this one was a lot of fun because we got to talk to a lawyer directly, Kurt. So Kurt's a lawyer with M.G. Miller uh, Intellectual Property Law. They focus quite a bit on IP and trademark type of law. Yeah, and, but he's quite technical as well, which makes him fun to talk to. Yeah, about this yeah. stuff. Yeah, he he gets the space, and you know he has the legal background as well. So, we one of the interesting things that 
he mentioned on this episode, which I'll always remember, was we were talking about like hard forks and derivative works. And he mentioned, he gave this like analogy of how cartographers back in the day used to put fake towns and maps. And that was really interesting, like how that works with respect to code now. Well, IOTA puts bugs in on purpose. Right. <laughs> is, is that the same thing? <laughs> Episode 18 was uh, Crypto SaaS Spotlight, John Young with Ledge and Building Professional uh, Crypto Research Tools. So John Young joined us from Ledge. He used to work at Capital One. And then he started his first two software as a service businesses, uh, Spread Street and Crypto Sheets. So basically, like the one of the things that was missing in the space was... Okay, first of all, every legacy like trader, researcher, banker, et cetera, has uses Excel or Google Sheets. And so if you want that whole group of people to get onboarded in the space, you're gonna want them to be in Google Sheets too. So John uh, basically invented a plugin where you can pull uh, crypto pricing data and other kind of data into Google Sheets and Excel. So you know, we talked to him. That was really interesting, like how he finds customers, who they are. He uses a lot of like content generation to find his customers. He has like one of the top top profiles on Quora within crypto and research. Um, and he uses that quite a bit. So, you know, it's probably it's a much needed uh, product in the space. So it was, it was cool to get his perspective on it. Episode nineteen, we talked to another lawyer that was Amy Wen, who's the founder of Sagewise. And we talked about legal tech stuff, uh, went over her background, you know, how she moved over from the traditional legal space into, into legal tech, you know, what's more specific details around like how smart contracts work, dispute resolution and things like that. Episode 20, this one was uh, ZRX and ESTC, a tale of exchange listing pops, the state of crypto reporting, it sucks and how you can make money by being contrarian and how Monero sliced up transaction fees with bulletproofs. So we talked earlier on this episode about like how we watch exchange listings and delistings and how they're very good indicators of short-term price movement. So we talked about that. We talked about how that's similar to like IPO first day trading pops, like what we saw in Elasticsearch recently. And then we talked about crypto reporting. It's just how it's just bad, like how it's a mix of like pay to play, Bad actors, mainstream media outlets with like 10-year-old FUD, you know, then like well-meaning actors who create these consensus views. And then I think the interesting part of this episode was basically like, if you were a trader, you should just be happy that this is happening. Because the sooner the space gets professionalized, the quicker you will lose your edge. Unless like mm. you're one of the one of the pros. So if mainstream media like Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal are saying one thing, but your data is telling you another, like that's opportunity to generate alpha by definition. So it won't last. Like as this space gets more professional, like those kind of easy layups just won't exist anymore. If it's basically, I'll give you a public market comparison. If everybody thinks that NVIDIA was going to beat and then you happen to know that like, okay, crypto is, is drying up for them. There's a ton of inventory from other, I'm sorry, other chip companies are having inventory issues. You know, I know, I think like NVIDIA is going to miss. That's a layup. Like that's when you put a really big position on because you have, you have some kind of proprietary knowledge 
that the rest of the market doesn't have. And crypto, that's, I mean, I guess you could argue it a few ways. You could be like, oh, well, that proprietary knowledge won't necessarily come out because it's very sentiment driven and stuff like that. But right. we've seen tons of examples of alerts that have come through our dashboard where it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And as the market matures, you may need to move from uh, manual research methods to maybe using a market intelligence platform. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Episode 21. So this one, we talked about stable coins and Tether and uh, PWC. And we went over stable coins, centralized ones, decentralized ones, you know, what they're used for and what risks might arise from them. So when we talked about this, my initial take, I remember saying was like, I'm very skeptical of stable coins because it's impossible to find any kind of asset that doesn't have volatility. Right. And more recently, I've been hearing a lot about Maker and Dai. You know, I do have to look into it because I'm it, not necessarily as an investment or anything, but just as a an asset that has been working the way it claims to be working. So Maker is kind of like this parent asset. Dai are these uh, kind of they're they're basically tokens that are tied to a dollar. And w- what you do is you can lock up. You know, say you want to lock up some ether to get some Dai. So now you have a collateralized position and you can use that die to do whatever you want. So what a lot of people are doing is what else would they do? You would trade. So like, you know, Ether has gone from $80 to $150. Now it's back down to 130 or so. There was a lot of movement in die. So it was basically acting as like a margin lending platform for ETH traders. Hmm. So that changed a little bit. This wasn't that long ago. It was like, I think we put out that episode like maybe five, six weeks ago. And a decent amount has changed since then. So I'm still skeptical on stable coins, but we do have an example of a coin that has seen a you know 90% drawdown in the price of Ether, but has maintained a pretty non-volatile price. So we should check that one out. Yeah. Interesting. What do you think of uh, Zuckbucks? Oh, with uh, Facebook launching, Facebook talking about launching, launching their crypto platform? That the internet has decided to call Zuckbucks. Zuckbucks. <laughs> Zuckbucks is better than Facebucks. I think I'd seen Facebucks yeah. somewhere. Yeah, someone put out a poll and Zuckbucks, I think, was the 7 to 1 favorite against <laughs> other contenders. They should definitely call it that. I wonder what the illegal optics of that would be. It's like you guys are already centralized as hell and now you're naming it after your founder. It, it just seems like a weird, weird thing where there's so much media attention on them like negative media attention and right when like, you know, I would like crypto sentiment or ICO sentiment is at its lowest. You are going to launch a cryptocurrency. Like, <laughs> it just seems like a weird PR move. You know, I also wonder how big of it a deal it is for them. Like, is it a small thing that just that the crypto media has blown out of proportion or is it a general, like a genuine thing that they're working towards? Cause they're going to have, if they want to do it, of course they're going to have to care about KYC and AML. They're going to have to care about whatever kind of banking regulations exist. I was listening to someone speak recently about Facebook, and it was really interesting. They were basically saying, like, Facebook, even though it's domiciled here in the U.S., it's not really an American company. Hmm. Because a lot of their users are, like, in Indonesia and India and in throughout Asia. Um, and that's the only way those people actually are able to check the news and communicate with each other. And then you add WhatsApp on top of that. And Instagram mm. on top of that, and you suddenly have this like. So it could make sense for them to have their own currency for their payments platform. 
Yeah. Again, I don't like it because I don't really like how centralized they've become, the number of data issues that have, data loss issues and privacy issues that have resulted from them uh, just kind of existing the way they have. I don't know if a lot of what they have done is associated with malice or incompetence. Like, are they just, do they just not care about, like, how many times have you heard about, like, something getting stolen from Facebook, right? Right. So I'm not confident in them being able to run a, like, I don't even know what the cryptocurrency that they launch would look like. Like, immediately what comes to mind is that they'll be able to help build out their surveillance apparatus, like, even further. Like, if they're able to track everyone's payments, see what people are doing, who they're communicating with and all that, like, you have even more information now on a person. So, I don't know, I'm pretty negative on it. I wondered the other day, I was like, what if they built it on top of Bitcoin? Like, what if they built a sidechain? Like, the Facebook federated sidechain? Like, what would that look like? Yeah. I wonder what, like, the Bitcoin community would think about that, too. But it's interesting. Episode 22, everything is dead. It's DED. So Bitcoin, blockchain, ICOs, volatility, and then Amazon takes over in New York City. So in this one, we looked... So basically, when we recorded this, everyone was saying, like, like everything was dead. Bitcoin is dead. Galaxy Digital, they were dumping their ICO advisory business, so ICOs are dead. Um, volatility is drying up, so, you know, finding alpha is dead. And uh, it was... Uh, Literally, like, I think we recorded that, and like a week later, everything went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a pretty big change in terms of like uh, a lot of volatility has picked up. Episode 23 called uh, the Crypto Hangover and Market Downturn, a look at semiconductor market cycles, NVIDIA throwing crypto under the bus, and what Nathaniel Popper got wrong in his recent New York Times article. So in this one, this had a lot of like traditional market stuff, but you know, it was kind of relevant to what's going on in crypto. We looked at semi-market cycles uh, and how results from companies like NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, and AMD really spooked the tech market. So NVIDIA basically placed all the blame of their miss on what they called a crypto hangover, which they mentioned like over and over and over again on their call. And we then looked at like, okay, this part was hilarious to me because there were two distinct predictions about this latest semi-cycle. And one was from Jag Capital, who's you know an asset manager, and another from a supply chain magazine that got it totally right. And Jag Capital, their thesis, uh, I remember you thought this was funny too, but their whole thesis was basically like, data centers are going to be huge. Data centers <laughs> use, use lots of chips. <laughs> Therefore, we need to invest in a ton of chip companies. Like That literally was what they wrote in their letter to their investors. Um, and then on the other side was the supply chain magazine who has seen market cycles for literally like 30, 40 years. And they right. had a very like detailed and thorough breakdown of right. their thesis. Right. There are some chips that the costs are, are rising. OEMs are not going to be able to buy them because things OEM is no longer going to be profitable at this price point and whatnot. It just made a ton of sense. It was like, oh, it's perfect. And they literally timed it to the day. So <laughs> that, that was a good episode. Definitely listen to that one because it's uh, it was a fun one. And then finally, episode 24, the attack of the attack vector is a 51% attack on Vertcoin and the demise of ASIC resistance and a social engineering attack on ETC, Ethereum Classic Dev and NPM libraries. So 
this whole episode was all about attack vectors. So we looked at the 51% attack on Vertcoin, uh, how ASIC resistance is actually probably going to be a massive security bug and not something that teams should really be looking for, and how Ethereum Classic was kind of taken over by a different group. So the interesting thing about this one is like a year ago, ASIC resistance was still something that people talked about uh, pretty regularly. It's like, we need an ASIC resistant coin because ASICs, all they do is lead to centralization, et cetera. But what we're finding out now is that uh, ASIC resistance is probably not the greatest choice because the network can actually get attacked pretty easily using like existing hashing power out there. So that, that was pretty interesting. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.